Welcome, royal fans, to a special edition episode of We'll Never Be Royals podcast. We have a wonderful guest tonight, and we hope that you enjoy having her as much as we did. So here goes another episode of We'll Never Be Royals podcast with Kristen and Jules. So today we have a very special guest with us. We are welcoming author Jennifer Robson. And Jennifer is the international best-selling author of five historical fiction novels set during and after the two world wars. An academic by background, a former editor by profession, and a lifelong history nerd, Jennifer now calls herself a full-time writer. Jennifer lives in Toronto, Canada with her family, and welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. We're really excited to have you. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. So we read The Gown um, in the Royally Goodreads book club, and Jules and I both are obsessed with this book, first of all. <laughs> oh Thank my gosh. I, abs I love historical fiction, but yeah, this especially, I just, I couldn't put it down. I think I read it in a day and a half. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. Music to my author's ears. <laughs> yes. So I think what made the book, I mean, at least for us, pretty special is combining, you know, two interests of historical fiction and reading and the British royal family. Um, and obviously a modern member of the British royal family that's in historical fiction at the same time, which I think is really interesting. So you don't usually see books with, you know, Queen Elizabeth. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, so how did you, let's start at the beginning, I guess, how did you get started um, as an author? So, uh, you know, I, I backed my way into it. I, uh, I, I had trained to be an academic. Um, I, have a, I have a PhD of all things in, in history. And then when I graduated, which is, was back in 1997, so I'm dating myself, uh, I, I couldn't get a job uh, teaching history. So I went sideways. I worked as an editor for a number of years, and I worked in book publishing as well. And then I was home on uh, kind of an extended maternity leave. Uh, my son was about two and a half, and my daughter was a newborn, and I was just spinning my wheels, um, feeling, you know, I loved being a mom, uh, but I found the work I was doing at that stage was mostly freelance uh, work as an editor. It was not inspiring, and, and I was fine uh, in terms of, you know, how my talents as an editor, but I, I certainly wasn't setting the world on fire. And I started having a feeling of, is this it? Um, have I, did I peak when I was in my <laughs> early 20s? Is it all downhill from here? And also, I think because the, the, my baby at that stage w was a little girl, and I started thinking, you know, is she... Is she going to look up to me the way I looked up to my mom, uh, who was a, a judge? And uh, I also looked up to my grandmother, uh, who was a journalist. And I started thinking, you know, I don't know if I met really setting the bar very high for myself. And so I started casting around for, you know, ideas of what I could do uh, beyond mm -hmm. the editorial work. Uh, and I didn't really want to go back into anything like an office job or anything. That just was not appealing to me. And and I had this kind of, Anne Lamott has called it the tug on the sleeve of your heart, where you, you have a little idea and it's really easy to ignore. And for years I'd had this little tug uh, telling me that maybe I could write a book. Um, I edited books, but maybe I could write one. Maybe I could... Um, 
tell a story and and along the way along you know the the as I was telling the story I would learn how to write a book myself um and the story that kept coming back to me this idea was of of going back to the period of the the first world war the great war and looking at it from a woman's point of view and and so I very slowly uh wrote the book because I had a toddler and a newborn at home and uh, about a, a year and a half later, I had a manuscript, which for the longest time I couldn't get published. And uh, and it was only when Downton Abbey came out and became this just massive hit mm-hmm. that suddenly uh, publishers were looking for books set in that period. Oh, that's interesting. And so I had a book ready to go, which I'd long since given up on. I mean, I, I think it had been two years since I'd last tried to to uh, attract the attention of a literary agent. But I tried again, and this time the reaction was completely different. And that book was somewhere in France, which astonished everyone, most of all me, by turning into a hit. Um, and, you know, I, I'd worked in book publishing. I know how rare it is for a debut novel to do well. I, I really did. And, you know, I try never to forget how fortunate I am that it landed the way it did and that people responded to it. Uh, it just, it changed my life. That's awesome. So That's did amazing. you, did you always want to, or think you were going to write something about the British Royal family? Uh, so that was more recent. I mean, you know, I'm a Canadian, so the queen is our head of state, um, which Jealous. I think sometimes people who, who are outside of the, the Commonwealth don't, uh, don't always remember, um, but she's our head of state. Um, so, for example, when my mum became a judge, uh, she was uh, the, the, I still have the framed proclamation, and it was by order of Her Majesty the Queen. Um, so our, our district attorneys, for example, are, are in fact called crown attorneys because they represent the interests of the crown. Uh, in terms, oh, wow. And directly, the per- and the crown is the queen. So, uh-huh. so the royal family is, is kind of woven into Canadian life uh, to a degree that it's not quite the same as it is in Britain, but certainly, and I grew up with, uh, you know, um, uh, my mother loved, loved the queen, especially loved the queen mum. Uh, and then, of course, my own interest as a British historian always gave me an interest in, in them uh, and the idea of people who are at once private figures, but also very much in the public eye. And so when I was looking for a book to follow up uh, Goodnight from London, uh, I, we basically, uh, and when I say we, I mean my editor and my literary agent. I, when I'm in the early stages of planning books, I'm always bouncing ideas off them because I know if they think an idea is good, then I have something. And if they think it's meh, then it's time to put it aside. And so we were bouncing ideas off one another. And... The idea was that I would move forward in time from uh, the end of Goodnight from London, which ends on uh, VE Day in 1945. And so I was thinking, well, well, what happens? You know, the ne- almost the, the next day, what happens? When you get up, you have this terrible hangover. <laughs> uh, you know, have to, everybody was, you know, having to clean up after the, the parties they'd had. And then has life changed in any measurable way and really the only way that life had changed for most people is that they could they could kind of go to bed and know that there wouldn't be a bombing raid Mm -hmm. and that if they had a loved one 
uh, in, you know, serving in the military, uh, that he or she uh, would was almost certainly going to be coming home at that stage. They didn't have to worry about them being being killed or injured. Um, but in every kind of practical respect of day to day life, nothing had changed. So life was really grim. Uh, everything was rationed. Like almost everything that you would want was rationed or unavailable. Um, there were shortages of, of so many things. Uh, London and all the major cities in Britain were, um, were, they weren't completely in ruins, but there were huge stretches of these cities that had been reduced to rubble. And there was no money to rebuild. I mean, the treasury uh, was empty. Uh, Britain had beggared itself on this war. And, um, and there wasn't a lot of help forthcoming from abroad. So, you know, whereas in the United States, uh, post-war recovery led almost immediately to, to this boom. And what we, when we look back at the 1950s, we see, you know, it's, it's all technicolor, day glow, sunshine and happiness. In, in the UK and also Europe, things were incredibly difficult for people. So with that in mind and, and saying to myself, I wanted to write about uh, the post-war period, I knew that that would be a really depressing book all on its own because it would just be grim, 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 gray, gray, gray. And, you know, that it takes a, a fair amount of intestinal fortitude as a reader to get through a long miserable book, you know, 400 <laughs> pages of people struggling. And I needed a counterpoint to that. And so as we, and we were actually all sitting in a restaurant, the three of us, and as I was bouncing ideas back and forth, like what would be the counterpoint? I mean, the first thing that came out of the blue really was, I, in 1947, uh, there was the, the, the royal wedding. And for the time, it really was the royal wedding. Uh, nothing came close, really, until uh, until Charles and Diana got married in 1981. I mean, there were other royal weddings, but in terms of um, the star of the show um, getting married, it was mm -hmm. Princess Elizabeth. And the minute I started digging into reading about uh, her wedding and the preparations for it, I realized that that's what I was looking for. Because here was this, this moment, uh, this great event, that's just dipped in stardust. And it is such a, a, a contrast to everyday life in Britain as it was then. That's, and I knew it would be in that contrast that I would find the story. Um, and that's why I chose to set the story not in Buckingham Palace, uh, not um, among people who were uh, either, you know, part of the royal family or, or close to the royal family. I needed to set it uh, among ordinary people, uh, like most of us, who um, were bearing the brunt of, of the victory. And what did their lives look like? Yeah, I, I liked how, um, you know, the main characters in the book, and for those of you who haven't read The Gown, um, it's told from three different point of views. So there's a modern day point of view of a young woman whose grandmother has just passed away and she's exploring a family secret. And then there's Anne, who is a seamstress with Norman Hartnell, who ended up making, you know, the royal wedding dress. And then Miriam, who is another um, embroiderer who works mm -hmm. there. And so you get to see um, the story from different points of view, which is 
really interesting. I always love historical fiction that does that too, between past and present. Um, but yes, I liked that it wasn't necessarily told from, because I think, I mean, we talked about this in the book club um, in Riley Goodreads, that telling it from the perspective of Princess Elizabeth, you know, that might have been, you know, hard to pull off, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of me, too, um, there's, there was part of me that was very, very reluctant to even try because I feel the Queen has spent her entire life in the spotlight. And I, I do have a lot, a lot of respect and affection for her. And it just seemed somehow I didn't want to be another one of these intrusive people uh, trying to push my way past the door into her private world. I didn't think I could pull it off for starters, but I also didn't feel I should even try. Um, you know, she's never given an interview. She never will. Uh, her, I, If she's kept a diary, I, I'm not sure if she has, but uh, it will not be published for at all. Or if it is, it would be heavily redacted, and then that would be many, many years in the future. Yeah. And there's just no way of knowing what her interior life is. And the great thing about fictional characters is I can tell you exactly what Anne and Miriam and Heather's interior lives are because I invented them. And, um, and you know, along with inventing them, I have to make them true to the times in which they live. Uh, and then that's where, I guess, the history nerd background comes in. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I would like to think that this this captures a, a point of view um, that actually is more insightful than if we had gone into the palace and looked at things from the princess's point of view, which would be by necessity very limited because she lived such a sheltered life, uh, certainly um, before she became queen. That's true. I mean, it's not like she would have been wandering around the city or been experiencing yeah, yeah. You know, a lot I of mean, those things. There was that, which is true, well, that, yeah. <laughs> that escapade that she and Princess Margaret got up to on the night of VE uh, Day, which, you know, if, if it already hadn't been turned into a film, and I believe that that was based mm -hmm. on a book, I think would make for a very fun story. Um, you know, the idea of the, the young princesses uh, running around London and not being recognized really by anyone. I, it's, I think it was called A Royal Night Out was the movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. I haven't and, seen that. Um, I keep meaning to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that in itself is, is entertaining. But, you know, I think it's that idea of, of, of telling the story of somebody who is close to the spotlight but is just outside the edge of where the, the light reaches. And what is their story? Um, you know, it, it's like, that's why we're always fascinated by these, um, you know, these upstairs, downstairs variations of, of, of stories, so, you know, behind the scenes at the White House, for example, behind the scenes at Buckingham Palace, um, behind the scenes uh, at any kind of, uh, you know, what is, what is it like to uh, be somebody who works on the crew of a movie? Mm -hmm. uh, those are things that fascinate us uh, as much as the stories of the people who are on center stage themselves. Definitely. I agree. It really gives you the opportunity to write uh, an entire story and really dive into characters. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, if you had done it from the perspective of Queen Elizabeth, you would have been limited yeah, in being yeah. able to develop them and give them a background and feelings yeah. and and all this so 
Yeah, and I think, you know, as much as uh, shows like The Crown are very, very entertaining, um, you know, they're to a certain degree, and I think even the people who are producing them would agree that, that there's a certain amount of um, poetic license that's being taken in depicting events. And that kind of poetic license um, where you're taking the lives of real people and maybe stretching the truth a little bit, makes me as as a creator a little bit uncomfortable uh, so insofar as is I do include um, real figures in my books I do my very best to even if I, I can't know for certain that they said or did a certain thing I try and make sure that it's plausible and um, you know and I'm not dissing the crown it's it's a fun fun show but some of the things that the real life characters get up to in the show are at times you know, a little less than plausible. Well, and, and it's speculation. Yeah, much. and it's speculation. And, and you know, sometimes I would uh, I would argue that, uh, for example, in the the first episode, which actually is the one that shows, uh, you know, Princess Elizabeth's wedding, uh, we have Churchill uh, having an absolute hissy fit at the wedding, um, and and kind of barking out inappropriate comments and coming in late. Uh, even after the queen herself has been seated, and none of those things actually happened. Um, he was, you know, the Churchill was many things, among them a very difficult person um, for all his brilliance as a politician late in life, but he also had a very, very high degree of reverence uh, for the king and queen and would never have done anything um, to upstage them or um, he would never have acted inappropriately at, at such um, uh, an important occasion. Um, and, and in fact, on VE Day, when the king uh, wanted him to join uh, the royal family on the balcony at Buckingham Palace, uh, Churchill didn't feel that he deserved to go out on the balcony uh, and had mm. to be kind of coaxed out, and of course to the roars of the crowd, but... Um, and so, you know, he, I think he was a much more complicated person than we see uh, at times in his portrayal there uh, in, in the show. Um, but again, when it's also a TV show, you're, you're by, you know, or a movie, you're constrained to relatively few minutes of screen time um, to, to tell the story. And that's where I love having the freedom of books in that if it takes me, you know, 20, 30, 40 pages to develop an idea or um, a character sketch, I've, I have the room to do it. That's true. And you have so much more freedom in that the ability to give them characteristics or traits yeah. And, yeah. and things like that. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and also, the, you know, the freedom to have terrible things happen to them yes. or good things happen to them. Uh, you know, and I, I, I mean, there are some moments that are very, uh, heartrending in the book, I guess. And I, you know, I've, I've surprised some people when I've admitted to them that as I was writing those scenes, I was crying <laughs> over my computer and uh, possibly, uh, invalidating the warranty with, with the salty tears, uh, <laughs> dropping on my keyboard. But it, you know, it, there's a point at which the story starts to take over and I feel almost powerless to change the direction it's going in. Uh, it's just the words come out and I copy them down. Um, it's a, it, it doesn't 
happen with every part of a book, but there's a certain point at which the book almost uh, takes control of itself and and um, that's a wonderful feeling and I know you know my writer friends we talk about it all the time there's a point at which the, it's just the momentum builds and then the story just starts coming out and you feel as if you're just it sounds very woo-woo but almost channeling the story and and then uh, you know there are days when I'll be writing and I'll look up at the end of it and think gosh I I I don't remember uh, the last few hours very well, but but there's there's another five thousand words here, and so, it, and typically what I'll do then is shut my computer, walk away. The next day I'll look at it, and it always surprises me by what's there. Um, no, I get that. I'm a writer too, actually, um, but I've had that happen in the past. Or I was trying to explain to a friend, um, she was asking me about writing or you know what I did, and I was like, well, you know, I was just typing, and you know, she walked into this restaurant and then I'm like oh okay that lady is over there well that must be her neighbor and then like all these things yeah. just start happening to them and she was like what like she just looked at me like I was crazy yeah yeah and people have looked at me like oh my goodness when I describe that feeling of uh yeah it's like you okay know, the, you just start the, writing and it, things in happen in the early stages of um the early stages of writing a book too it's when I'm waiting for the characters to wake up and start talking to me and uh um and quite often it'll be when I'm driving around or I'm mm-hmm. out on a walk with a dog or, you know, I'm sometimes when I'm exercising and, and it'll just, um, they'll just kind of tap me on the shoulder and, um, and, and that's, that's how, and, and almost start talking to me. Hmm. So I should say, I do not literally hear voices. <laughs> um, disclaimer. But, uh, yeah, disclaimer. <laughs> um, but um, but I do start, the stories come in bits and pieces and then they build and build and build. And, and it's, you know, there's a certain point at which I, uh, as much as like most writers, I'm a bit of a procrastinator, but there's a point at which the only thing I can do is start writing. Um, and really, that's when my friends know uh, that they won't see me again. You know, for a space of, you know, typically three or four months as as the bulk of kind of the the writing happens on a book. Um, but I, I, you know, I research obsessively for months and months and months. And then and then it just has to I guess I feel maybe I run out of space in my brain <laughs> um, <laughs> Gotta get it and I just paper. have to get the story down. Yeah, yeah. I totally understand that. Um, the research aspect I know that was something that Jules and I were both interested mm-hmm. in as we were reading this book, um, especially yes. in terms of the wedding gown itself. Yeah. Yeah, it was, so the wedding gown itself, I mean, the, its appearance and how it's constructed and so on is very well documented. Um, you know, it's, it is, um, it, when it's not on display, uh, which is to say 99% of the time, uh, it resides, uh, you know, it's in the care of the Royal Collection uh, Trust and uh, is, you know, kept under museum-like conditions. Uh, that being said, it's actually in, in quite poor condition, not because of how it's been kept, uh, but because the actual silk that was used uh, to make the the peau de suave the main portion of the gown itself is 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 um, deteriorating, uh, and I think they're 
there's just, I think one of the chemicals that was used to treat the, the silk, uh, af either bef once it had been spun uh, or maybe after it was woven, but before it was turned into the dress, uh, is has led the silk to corrode very badly, almost yeah. as if it had been left out in sunshine. You know, the way silk is, yeah. can be very unstable that way. And so they're doing their best to preserve it, but really any amount of light is very, uh, um, really is, affects the condition of the gown. So I saw it in 2000, uh, it would have been 2016, when it was uh, on display for her 90th birthday uh, at Buckingham Palace. And uh, it had, in previous uh uh, exhibitions that had been displayed on a stand. Uh, this time it was displayed flat, as I, I describe it actually in, in the book, um, with with kind of uh, supports, invisible supports underneath, mm -hmm. um, and in very low light conditions because it is so fragile. And I really doubt we'll see it again on display anytime soon because of its condition. Um, the, the accompanying train is in much better shape because the tool that it's mounted on has just survived uh, in better condition, but the gown itself is very fragile. So it was easy to learn all about that, um, you know, in terms of being able to see very, very detailed photographs of the gown and, and to, see it, uh, to see it in person and all of that. Where uh, I ran into difficulties is that um, there's very little... Uh, known about uh, the people who worked in the workrooms for Norman Hartnell at the time. Uh, his private papers exist. Uh, they were inherited by a descendant of, of uh, I believe it was uh, his, um, his manager, and are held privately. Uh, there's one academic who currently has access to them, and she's uh, understandably very hesitant to let anyone else see. Uh, including me. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. I was not able to get in and look at his private papers, which in any event have not been cataloged. So, uh, and I remember despairing over this to my editor and uh, she pointed out as she was busy calming me down that that kind of would fall into the realm of research for a doctoral thesis. And she said, you, you already have one of those. We don't <laughs> expect you to do the work for a second one. Um, so don't, that's not something anyone would expect of me to go through the private papers. Although, you know, if, if I could turn back time and have a, have a shot at seeing those papers, I absolutely would. And I don't care how long it would take me to go through them. Um, but what it meant is that anything in any information in terms of the names, uh, and backgrounds of the women who worked, uh, in his embroidery and sewing workrooms, um, is, is more or less, uh, was out of, out of my reach. And I had a few names and a very few photographs, um, but that was it. And there was some, there were some scant mentions of the construction of the gown in, uh, Mr. Hartnell's memoirs. And, uh, there were a handful of newspaper and magazine articles, uh, Picture Post, uh, which is actually, I fictionalize as Picture Weekly in, in my books. Um, they did a story about the construction of the gown. Most of that actually concentrated on the, uh, the, the, um, 
the silk workers and the weavers who made the fabric uh, and not on the seamstresses and embroiderers. And so there's, I only have one picture or I only had one picture of the workrooms. So, but I'm starting to feel frantic because I originally intended to, to take known characters and maybe fictionalize them, but I just, apart from Mr. Hartnell and people like Mamzelle and Miss Dooley, who was a real person, although nothing more is known of her than really her name, um, I had nothing. And so I, you know, I kept working, I kept writing, but I always had this feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm having to speculate. I, I feel so uncomfortable. I don't really know what it looked like inside the workrooms. I don't know what time of day they started work or, you know, how long they had for lunch or um, what was it like? Were they allowed to talk? Uh, did anyone ever put on a radio? Things like that. I just had no idea what an ordinary day would be like. And it was at the very end of my research when I had got so frantic that I'd gone all the way to England to learn how to do the embroidery, uh, um, which in itself was a, was, was a wonderful experience. But it was while I was at the uh, hand embroidery studio, Hand and Lock, um, in uh, the early 2017, that I was in introduced to Betty Foster, who is the last of the group of four women who, uh, who did the principal uh, sewing uh, work on the gown. Uh, she wasn't an embroiderer, which I think is why I hadn't found her earlier. Uh, she was a seamstress, and she worked under the supervision of Miss Halliday. Um, and the, she and uh, two other uh, kind of um, uh, second hands, in the sense that they worked under the supervision of a senior first-hand uh, seamstress, they were the four women who made the gown. And so once I had the opportunity to talk to her, and she was so wonderful and just welcomed me into her home, spent hours and hours talking with me, answering all my questions, and then over the months that followed, answering follow-up questions. And she was just so wonderful. And she was the person who opened those doors uh, and led me inside the workrooms and, and kind of showed me around. And I, I wouldn't have found the book without her. She was, you know, as a historian, as a writer, you just pray for these moments where you can reach out and touch the past and feel a connection. And with Betty, that happened in the most incredible way. I, I just, you know, I, I fumble a little bit talking about it because I just am so grateful to her. And on top of all that, she is just the nicest, loveliest person. Um, and very, she's very beautiful, I have to say. I mean, she is 91 now. Wow, um, I was going to ask how old she was. And wow. she looks, I mean, easily 30 years younger. Uh, wow. She just is a very, very attractive person. But, you know, she also is the matriarch of this big, very close, um, very tight-knit family. And her children just love her to bits. And her granddaughter, uh, Belle, who is a lovely girl, uh, uh, and Belle is the holder of the email, as it were. Betty herself does not have email, but whenever I need to ask a quick question, or sometimes I, you know, if, if there's been a new article about the book 
that mentions Betty, I send it to her granddaughter, and then Belle takes it across and shows it to her nan. And um, just meeting her was one of one of the best moments of my life as an historian, and I, I guess I've been an historian for, I would say, 30 years, ever since I started uh, studying it at, at university. And I, I'll just, I, I don't think I can ever top the feeling of sitting and listening to Betty talk about um, sewing the buttonholes on the queen's wedding dress. Oh, wow. That's that's, that's a truly unique experience. Yeah, yeah. And she has this scrapbook, um, at which, you know, if, if anyone's interested to see some more photographs, I have some more photographs of them on my, my Instagram feed. Uh, you'd have to scroll back away, but they're there. And she kept all these little pieces of fabric, uh, she kept a scrap buttonhole she practiced on. She had an eye and a kind of an intuition for history uh, that not many people often have when they're in the middle of things. Exactly. Uh, but she, she knew to keep these things. And I mean, she was given all of it. It was a case of she things were going to be thrown out and she'd say, oh, Miss Halliday, may I have this or that? And Miss Halliday would say, oh, sure. And so she has the extra buttons. She has some of the beautiful woven buckram uh, kind of, you know, horsehair stiffener uh, that was used to stiffen the skirts. And normally, I mean, I don't know if anybody remembers sitting on their grandma's couch made, covered in horsehair fabric. I mm-hmm. certainly do when I was a little kid and it was so scratchy. And, um, but this stuff felt like gossamer. It was, it was so finely woven um, you'd never believe it was made out of horsehair. And so that even the in, internal parts of the gown that no one would ever see were perfect. Oh, wow. uh, like, you know, Norman Hartnell was not a couturier in the strict sense of the word and that he, he did, he did not have a salon in Paris and so on. Uh, but the standards at Hartnell, especially for a gown of this sort were extraordinarily high and this wedding gown you could turn inside out and it was almost as beautiful on the inside um it was just and everything was done by hand there was nothing was being stuffed through a sewing machine it was every stitch in that gown is is made was done was set by hand oh wow yeah i didn't realize they didn't use any machines at all i mean they would for other commissions Uh and they had um they had a sewing machine operators who were distinct from the seamstresses and uh betty told me how mamselle uh would refer to them as the 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 mechanique um (laughs) so the mechanics Oh. And she was very, she had a very strong accent, even after living in England for years. And she would, if they needed, again, for something that would just be a slightly more pedestrian um, uh, commission. Uh, and for things like suits and so on, where the softness was not needed, she would just say, oh, you can just, you know, you can run that through, give it, give it to the mechanique and just <laughs> mm. and stuff it through the machine. Um, and she would not let her girls, in terms of the seamstresses, uh, who worked for ever use the machine because she felt it would it, it would spoil them. They had to stick to the the fine handwork, mm. um, and it shows. I mean, if you are a, if anyone is ever able to go to places like uh, the Victorian Albert Museum or the Bath um, uh, Costume History Museum in England, you can see Hartnell uh, gowns up close. And the work is incredible. Um, 
it just the 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 embroidery and the detailing is is just it uh, it just it boggles the mind how how they're able to do such work i'm looking at a photo of the exhibit which this must have been the one that you saw where it's kind of it's lying down it's kind of yeah it was on out. kind of a slanted board and then they had invisible supports inside yes. Yes. yeah uh, but you can see, you know, the train is laying down, so you can see mm. the inside of the fabric, and it's true. It is so, yeah. I mean, to the to the absolute minute detail, so perfectly done. Yeah. They even had, so the motifs, the beautiful star flower motifs, were even continued on the underside of, of the mm -hmm. skirt. Um, and so no one was ever expected to see that. But this was a gown for a princess who, you know, they had every expectation she would one day, presumably in the far distant future, uh, be queen. And so that's how they approached uh, Mr. Hartnell and everyone who worked for him. They approached the commission was that this was a very, very significant gown. And really the only gown that, that would surpass it was her coronation gown. Uh, which I also saw and is, if possible, even more magnificent in terms of the embroidery. I mean, the, the embroidery there is incredible. And I think in some ways it's showier because it's uh, done with colored silks. Mm -hmm. um, so you can actually, the detail shows up that much more. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm going to see Megan's wedding dress in June. Yeah. When it goes I, on oh, you will love it. I saw it in November. I was lucky oh, enough to, awesome. to go to Windsor Castle, and there was a small kind of semi-private tour. So I think there were only about 10 people in total. And it was in the evening, and the castle was otherwise completely shut down. And so our guide and then uh, one of the, the footmen who worked there, we were kind of going through and unlocking doors and then and and turning on the lights and then locking doors behind us and so when we got to the room where um the duke and duchess's outfits were along with the um the, the little flower girl dress that princess charlotte wore and the little uh page boy uh uniform that prince george had um we were allowed to linger and oh, nice. um at the you know they'd normally have the ro it's roped off so you can't get very close but they said mm -hmm. oh don't worry about that. So I had my nose pressed <laughs> to the glass, pressed. Oh, I would. And gosh. it was so amazing because what the television cameras did not capture, couldn't have hoped to capture, was the detailing in her veil. Oh, it was amazing. And I've seen very few photographs that really get in very close and and show you how finely worked uh, the flowers were. Uh, because many of them are three-dimensional, uh, so that the organza that the petals are made out of is raised, um, and it's uh, the edges have been whip-stitched uh, very, very finely, and so they sit proud of the veil itself. So there's this wonderful three-dimensional quality to the flowers. It's done very subtly, but the, the workmanship is incredible. Um, and, you know, when I think about it, uh, you know, they both, Megan and Harry, talked about how they, they wanted the Commonwealth flowers. And I think uh, more than it, it, you know, it obviously was a sending a, a very lovely uh, message to people of the Commonwealth, like myself. But I think specifically it was meant as a message to the Queen. 
because she would have been in the position to appreciate seeing those flowers up close. Absolutely. Um, in a way that we can't. I mean, she was front and center. Uh, and also because Harry uh, would, they both know very well how how close the Commonwealth is to uh, the the Queen's heart. Uh, she, uh, it's it's if if there's one kind of part of her life's work that I think she is she cherishes, and she really is very keen to see continued. It's the uh, it's the Commonwealth in the sense that. You know, out of the ashes of the empire, her father created this commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And which, you know, when we talk about commonwealth, it really is something that uh, for people in, in Canada and the other countries that belong to it, it's, it's a very positive force. I can speak to that. I was a commonwealth scholar at Oxford, which meant that the, you know, the Commonwealth Foundation paid uh, for me to go to Oxford. Um, oh, wow. So I benefited from the Commonwealth very, very directly. And, you know, I, t to see that uh, respect for uh, the Queen uh, manifest, uh, it, made manifest in the veil was, to me, I, I found it intensely moving. Um, and, you know, not every statement, fashion statement that people make has to be kind of loud and in your face. Precisely. This was a very, this is deliberately a very, very subtle but personal statement made by the Duke and Duchess. And, and I think it, it was meant more for the Queen than necessarily for anyone else. Uh, the one thing that, you know, was pointed out kind of after the fact is that veil was so incredibly detailed and yeah. so incredibly ornate that, you know, yes, Megan's dress might have been you know, more on the plain side than, say, um, the Duchess of Cambridge's dress was. Mm -hmm. But because of that veil, you could not have really, you know, pulled off anything else on the dress. I think Megan specifically wanted to focus on that yeah. veil. I think that was her, the heart and soul. Of I agree. I agree. And, you know, it was uh, the two weddings themselves were very different. Uh, the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge was a state occasion um, that was the heir to the throne uh, marrying someone who will, in the fullness of time, become queen. So that, and it was in Westminster Abbey, which is a much larger, um, uh, how should I put it, a setting or backdrop for mm -hmm. a gown. So it had, the gown had to um, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge's gown was, had to fulfill kind of different needs in a way than the one worn by the Duchess of, of Sussex, who is in a much smaller venue. I mean, the, the really, the, the, the chapel at St. George's is, is much, much smaller. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was a much more intimate feeling wedding. It was not a state occasion, which is why you do not see heads of state, um, uh, or former heads of state having been invited. Um, and, you know, Harry's not in the direct line of succession, so there wasn't that requirement to make it um, a grand, grand occasion. Yeah, to she the didn't same need it, yeah. Now, that a being said, gown. a royal wedding's <laughs> a royal wedding. You're going to get, you know, the that... I mean, there's just nothing like a royal wedding, is there? I, I, I love them. <laughs> I was up at the crack of dawn for both weddings with my girlfriends and our 
fascinators and, you know, um, we had, you know, uh, homemade scones and uh, strawberries and cream and tea and mimosas and, uh, and, you know, those, they were very, I don't know, I just found them incredibly fun occasions to watch, but, but they're meant to be different. And that's why Kate's dress, you know, was, they also reflect women with very different um, personal styles. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and so I, you know, I, I, a lot of people have criticized Megan's dress. I think, you know, the only thing I would say personally is that maybe, um, and again, it's hard to tell without standing next to her as she's wearing it. Maybe the fabric was a touch heavy in terms of the weight of, of, of the of the silk that that made the the gown itself um although again i can't really speculate i haven't handled the dress right mm-hmm. um and i also think i i'm convinced that the terrible terrible stress of of all of the family stuff that was going on and the weight of the world uh, on her, I think she may have lost uh, a bit of weight beforehand. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely that, agree. that led to it maybe not fitting quite as perfectly as it could have done. You know, I hesitate to sound critical, but I just I remember when I got married, with, in the eyes of precisely you know twelve people practically, uh, I felt we had you know with any wedding there's a lot of stress from family and so on. And I lost a lot of weight right before. And I remember getting in trouble from the seamstresses because who were, when I went in for my final fitting and they were grumpy with me because I lost so much weight and they had to do more work. Um, And, but I wouldn't be surprised if just in the week or so before maybe, but you know, I don't want to speculate too much, but she, you know, she was just under and continues to be under the most you know, relentless kind of level of attention. And, um, and I really, I, I, I have to say, I just deplore the British tabloids uh, for the, you know, the attention, this just Klieg light attention that they, they focus on her and, uh, and her extended family. And, um, and it's just, it seems very heartless to me, um, and also a lot of the attention that's that you know, and the things that are said about her are frankly uh, disgustingly racist. And I think people writing these things should be ashamed of themselves um, because you know she and Harry do a lot, uh, and and the same is true of, of um, you know Kate and William. They do a lot of things to make the world better. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, nobody, you know, none of us are perfect. Um, and, but, you know, given the very limited roles that they find themselves in um, and that, you know, how, how kind of tightly their roles are defined and prescribed, um, they've really gone out of their way to, 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 to do good with, with, the the you know the um with the kind of the the power as it were the limited power that that they have and Mm -hmm. particularly the the emphasis on you know mental health i think is incredible um absolutely i i honestly think they've saved people's lives with that 
Um, I saw the closing ceremonies of the Invictus Games in Toronto a few years ago, uh, which was actually the first occasion where uh, Megan was more or less in public with, with Harry. Um, and the effect that he uh, and his attention and his very, very um, apparent, I mean, he really cares about these men and women. Absolutely. He really, really does. And the effect that his respect for them has on, I think, people's self-esteem and their mental well-being is just incalculable. And, you know, he, uh, you know, I think he, he obviously went through a really tough time after his mom was killed. And, um, and look what a, a person he's become. And um, I think the same is true for his brother. And without being too worshipy of them, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of tremendously wealthy people in the world uh, who do very, very little, mm-hmm. uh, if anything, to help uh, the people around, the you know, the world at large. And, um, you know, as... Uh, you know, as wealth goes, the British royal family is kind of solidly in the middle there. They they have nothing like Absolutely. the wealth of, of many people. Mm-hmm. Um, but look what they do with what they have. And it would be very easy for them to not really do much at all. There certainly are some members of the royal family who I think could, could pull their weight a bit more. Um, but, you know, these people really, I mean, the, the look on... You know when they were in, when Harry and Meghan were in uh, uh, on their their tour down under, and there was the uh, the older lady who I think was the the widow of a, a veteran who you know w- was waiting for them, and I think it was oh, either yes. cold or raining, and they both just knelt on the ground in front of her, mm-hmm. and I thought my heart was going to just crack when seeing that. Ab- it was just absolutely. lovely, very inspiring. Yeah. Well, and they, you know, they're dead. They're dedicating their life to this, you know. Yeah. They they aren't trying to make excuses for being royal or trying yeah. to, you know. They embrace it and they they use it to promote, you know, causes that they truly care about. And I mean, I don't. What's more admirable than that? Yeah, you know? yeah. So. And I mean, Kate Kate could have lived her life uh, as a very wealthy person out of the public glare. Um, her sister, you know, has gone off and yeah. married a billionaire and does, has, I mean, I'm, I'm not um, uh, criticizing Pippa, but she has nothing like the uh, commitments and expectations that her sister has. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, you know, this was a choice that both she and Megan made to embrace the roles that have set, been set before them. And to do so wholeheartedly. And I just, part of me does, I, I've been, you know, feeling somewhat intermittently anxious for for Megan because, you know, I remember what it was like expecting my first baby and, and all of that. And then to have just this terrible glare of attention uh, and very negative attention um, upon her must be so difficult. And I... Th- I have just nothing but admiration for the way she comports herself. And um, also those heels. I mean. Oh, my gosh. Gosh, when I was that. First of all, I looked nothing uh, like as elegant and beautiful as she did. But, I mean, those high heels when she's so pregnant. And she must just want to be wearing slippers every We've day. We've talked about this before on the podcast. I, yes. But yeah. I actually wore heels one time when I was pregnant. And I fell and, like, cut up my knee. It was, like, 
kind of badly injured and my doctor was like what are you doing you're not allowed to wear heels you're banned and yeah so that was like the end of my heel wearing career and they were wedges and barely that tall so I give her props yeah yeah I was I certainly was wearing the flattest of flat shoes um, yeah I don't know how she does uh, it so so I'm not even pregnant and I'm like I cannot walk all day in those heels yeah, so, no, no yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's something like it just, and you know, we all know the feeling if you have to give a speech somewhere or you're up, you know, in front of an audience for a brief moment and, and how nerve wracking it is. Uh, not in the sense you have nerves. Um, and I mean, I do a lot of public speaking and I don't get nervous before it, but just that, that notion that the people are really focused on you and you imagine have to what be that on. Yeah. Exactly, that feeling of being on. And so it's basically like that feeling of on of on that you have on your wedding day, only that stretches to the rest of your life. Every, Every time, time you leave, you leave the, the house. Yeah, mm-hmm. constantly, relentlessly. And you know that it's like in the Seinfeld episode where he turns his head sideways and he's, he's scratching his nose and the old girlfriend comes is sitting in a car next to him and she thinks he's picking his yes. nose and that kind of thing. Like you, every single movement you have, you can't scratch, you know, under your arm. If it's itchy, you just have mm-hmm. to sit there and live with it. Um, you, you, everything you do. And if you have for one moment, like I remember the Duchess of Cambridge, and I can't remember if she was pregnant, but she was on the balcony, um, on Remembrance Sunday and for one second, I think she just looked up or she'd maybe had a moment of inattention over what is a very long ceremony. And of course, the photographers caught her. Oh, Your, her face just relaxing for one second. And that's the picture that goes out. Even though if you had been there watching her throughout the ceremony, you would have seen that she was the picture of composure and respect for uh, for the the veterans and the war dead. I mean, of course she was, but to know that anything you do could end up on the front page of a paper, I I think would be intolerable. And the fact that they have embraced this and are 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 using it as best they can, this kind of attention to do good for others is um, is something I just uh, have such admiration for. So. Just kind of connecting um, the modern royals then to, you know, Queen Elizabeth and Princess Elizabeth in novelization. I just think it's interesting (laughs) how over the years, you know, that type of royal has changed, um, how they do engagements has changed. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting to see, I mean, down the road, eventually Meghan and Kate, you know, Diana, I'm sure will end up in, you know, historical fiction novels and you know, how that will play out. But. Yeah, and I think what's interesting when you look at the Royal Wedding of 1947, that's the first, what I would term, uh, kind of Royal Wedding of the modern period in the sense that that's the first one where you see the sustained international attention that begins from the moment of the announcement of the engagement, which was in late uh, July 1947. So, you know, the royals never have long engagements. I mean, four or five months, really. Um, and really just long enough to kind of plan and, and, and um, uh, you know, get everything in place for, for a, a large state occasion. Um, but, 
you know, previous royal weddings, uh, there would obviously be pictures and interest in them and so on, but nothing like the just absolute fervent, uh, obsessive attention that we see today. And the first of the weddings to get that kind of attention um, before the fact uh, was was the was Princess Elizabeth's wedding in 1947, and really, you know, and that was as much the fact that it had been a while since the previous royal wedding, which was, uh, which was, I guess, the the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester uh, before mm-hmm. the war, uh, the king's brother and sister-in-law. And then you have this break. Nobody was having royal weddings during mm-hmm. the war. Um, and along with that period, we you see uh, a kind of some really seismic changes in the speed of communication internationally. So, Absolutely. Uh, so with, you know, so wireless uh, in terms of uh, radio transmissions uh, could happen pretty seamlessly. Uh, international, um, you know, you could, you could place uh, international calls. I mean, ordinary people weren't doing that, but but heads of state were. Mm-hmm. Um, photographs could make their way around the world quite quickly, and so you know, with that, uh, the means you have the international press arriving in London, uh, kind of camped out on the doorstep of Hartnell, and obviously uh, following the princess um, over those months. And the the it just it's amplified uh, the attention that this wedding got, and along with the the uh, increase in attention uh, on the royal family, you also have attention on the people making the gown, uh, which you know is obviously part of the the plot of 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 my book in that you know that that obsessive interest in what the gown would look like. Uh, this is the first time that's a thing, as it were. Um, and, you know, it was interesting when I hear people speculate on why the royal family, uh, uh, you know, the royal brides now do not release details of who designed their dress and who is making it. Um, it is absolutely not because there's some interest uh, by the royals in amping up the level of uh, interest in the royal wedding, that's not it. It's out of concern for the um, the people who are making the dress. Absolutely. Because we, we've seen with that terrible tragedy that occurred when Prince George was born and the, the you know, the people um, ringing the hospital and, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and the nurse that died yeah, that was afterwards, terrible. which is yes. so so awful. And you know, the the tabloids would not hesitate to if they knew who was who had been making Meghan's dress or or Kate's dress, they would have been following every single person who worked for that designer home. Absolutely. They would have been going through their trash bins, uh, bugging their cell phones, mm-hmm. and so that's really why it's a secret. It, it's the only way that they can allow that people can be allowed to do their work in a way that that you know stops short of them being uh, uh, imprisoned in, mm-hmm. in the workrooms for three months at a time. Yeah. Um, and it, it is fascinating to me to see how how far things have gone in the 70-odd the years since, since uh, the, Queen's, the Queen's wedding. Um, you know, she is the person who, you know, at the heart of it is responsible for the modernization of the royal family. 
Um, she is the, none of the things that we now see as normal behavior by the royals in terms of the walkabouts, um, the, you know, the, uh, the interest in, in uh, charities that focus on the welfare of, of uh, people who are marginalized and dispossessed. None of these things would have happened if the queen had not been on board. Uh, I think it's really important to remember that. And um, so, you know, it's over the 70-odd the years that she's, well, technically 66, I guess, now years that she's been at the helm, um, that you've seen these changes. And these are enormous changes compared to the previous 60-odd years, where the royal family, you know, at the time of Victoria to the time of... Uh, of say, if we look at when Victoria ascended the throne in, in 1837, all the way up to when the Queen's father died, uh, and she became Queen in 1952, uh, not a lot changed about the royal family mm -hmm. in that period. Where we see change is from uh, the Queen, uh, that, you know, the Queen becoming Queen in 52 to today. Uh, and she's the person who is responsible for it, largely, uh, because nothing, no one would ever do anything if she were not on board. Absolutely. She really does run the show. Um, and for that, I give her full credit. Um, you know, for somebody who was brought up in a very sheltered way, had no access or limited access to a higher education, she is a very, very well-informed uh, person. She has a very keen understanding of uh, of her role as a constitutional monarch, and she's one of the rare people who has been around to see ev to meet every head of state, absolutely um, every significant person uh, over the last three quarters of a century and mm -hmm. even before. Um, so, I mean, if I could interview the Queen, I would. Oh my gosh! My goodness! Um, and you know, <laughs> even just to sit and have tea with her, I think would be so incredible. Uh, but oh my, um, yes. uh, you know, I, I doubt that invitation will be forthcoming. <laughs> well, we loved the gown and just found it so fascinating. And this was a real treat for both of us just to hear Thank some more you. behind the scenes. And um, if you can just tell our listeners real quick what is coming up next for you um, when your next book is out. Yeah, you know. so I'm working on it now. And I, it's kind of under the cone of silence in that I'd been working for some months on a book that, that was set uh, partly in old Hollywood in kind of the golden age of Hollywood. And I think mm -hmm. I will write that book one day. But then I had one of the, I call them the anvil falling out of the sky moment, <laughs> where suddenly you're, you know, I'm walking along and then kapow, an idea <laughs> comes to me. And I've set that book that I'd done a lot of work on aside, and I've started a new one. Um, and I'm still in that zone of feeling I can't really talk about it too much because uh, the bubble will burst and all my ideas were van will vanish. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but it is, it is actually, I'm going back and, and, and setting it firmly within the Second World War. Um, okay. just, there's just another story that I really, really want to tell. And that one is on track to come out uh, not in January 2020, uh, which would be a very, very tight schedule for me to get it done, but it, the following January. So okay. I, I, I typically have about a two-year break b between books at the mm -hmm. moment. Um, 
and in the meantime, I'll be traveling all over the place. So uh, I just posted details on my Facebook and Instagram feed of where you can find me. And, and it seems every day I open my email and there's a new event that I'm adding. So I'm trying to keep up with that. And what are your um, Facebook and Instagram um, handles just for? Oh, so Instagram is author Jennifer Robson, all lowercase, all one word. And it's the same for Facebook. Great. Well, thank you so much for yes. joining us tonight. Thank we you. really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And we're looking forward to your next book. Thank yes. you. And we, we truly, I, again, I can't stress enough how much I loved this book. It was oh. just, it was a joy. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's a thrill to know that people who really know the royals are, are on board with, uh, with the book. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. And uh, yeah, we'll be looking for what comes next. Thank you. Thank you.